Everyone is anxious these days. Really a, a, an anxiety epidemic among us. What one researcher calls a mental health crisis of unprecedented proportions. It's affecting people across genders and class, ethnicity, walks of life, generations. A quick internet search will reveal results on rapidly increasing childhood anxiety, on university students facing anxiety disorders at a rate double just a decade ago, and older adults actually seeing the biggest year-to-year -year spike in anxiety. What makes us so anxious these days? Well, the sources likely haven't changed much over time. Studies say that the five main areas that we get anxious over, that we worry over, are health, safety, finances, politics, and relationships. If you're a young person, you could probably add school to that list. But why we are so increasingly worried about these things is more complicated, more complex. Some point to technology and the 24-7 news cycle that we have, and the all-consuming social media that we just live in. Some point to consumerism and the constant pursuit of more from life. Some point to busyness and stress and that having little margin or rest creates. Some point to political turmoil, to economic uncertainty, to poverty, to family breakdown, to relational abuse, even to dietary or sleep habits. But just because anxiety is so common in our world doesn't mean that we should just resign to its power. And just because anxiety is so understandable today doesn't mean it's right. I mean, everyone would agree that anxiety is unhealthy for us. All kinds of negative side effects, undesirable side effects. But I want to go a step further than that today and make a, a bold claim that anxiety can be evil. Vlogger Matthew Holst says that anxiety is a direct result of an idolatrous heart. I tend to agree with him. We become anxious when we put our trust or our faith in something other than God. Now, even if that thought makes you more anxious or nervous, take a breath, all right, calm down. Jesus knows that we live in a broken, fallen, difficult world. And so I believe that he can speak today into our life situations with compassion and grace and love. So let's open up our Bible. As we've looked at Matthew 6 recently, Jesus has homed in on our hearts, saying that there should be a, a secret, internal, spiritual dimension to our faith. That though our God-given righteousness should express itself in outward ways, such as giving or praying or fasting, we mustn't do these things with the wrong motives, like trying to impress people. Instead, our lives should be driven by things that are yet unseen, invisible to us now. 
This is what Pastor Kenny went over with us last Sunday. Verse 19, look at it with me. It says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what we pursue determines where our heart's allegiance really lies. And verse 24 said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. What Jesus says right after this is why I said we could say that anxiety is a direct result of an idolatrous heart. Because... Right after this massive statement that we have got to love God above all else in our lives, Jesus says, therefore, therefore, you cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. So there is some connection between getting focused on things of earth and getting anxious. The reason they go together, wealth and worry tend to go hand in hand. The wealthier we are, the more we worry about our wealth, earning our paychecks, fixing up our homes, insuring our assets, securing, maintaining, protecting our wealth. There are a lot of anxieties that we have. We are in constant danger of consuming ourselves with this present world. And if we are consumed by it, we cannot be consumed by heaven. To put it yet another way, if we are to truly keep God as God in our life and learn to putting to trust him as God and learn to put anxiety aside, we learn to trust him instead of being anxious. This is why I, I said that our hearts, attitudes, our minds, as I, I see them, it's an aspect of righteousness or unrighteousness. We have two options of what to pursue in life, earth or heaven. If we aim at earth, our physical, visible, present existence, we will be anxious. But if we aim at heaven, the, the kingdom of God and, and righteousness, really that's an expression of faith. I'm reminded of the classic quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. In a way, that can sum up the teaching of this whole chapter. Love God first. Let him purify your heart's motives so you can aim at heaven. And so, therefore, we come to verse 25 and it says this. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? This is basic everyday stuff Jesus is talking about here. Eating, drinking, getting dressed. Every single one of you here has likely done all three of those things already today. All right? And we need these things in our lives. If we didn't eat... We die of hunger. We didn't drink, we die of thirst. We didn't get dressed, especially here in Canada, you'll die from exposure. 
So if there were ever things we should worry about as human beings, these three things are a pretty reasonably good place to start. Along with the, the worry, the potential worry of not being able to afford these things. So the worry about finances. Notice that the food and drink have to do with sustaining our health. Clothing has to do with safety from the elements. And in order to have these things, we need to have the financial means to get them. Do you remember three of the biggest areas I said people are most worried about these days? Studies back this up. One, two, and three. Health, safety, and finances. These worries have not gone away at all. And really, they can be representative of almost any worry that we have in life. But despite these being fundamentally basic human needs, Jesus says to not worry about them. Don't be anxious about them. Now, he doesn't mean that we're not supposed to think about them. Of course, we have to think about them, but he doesn't want us to be anxious about them. And why? It's like, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food? And the body that life is deeper than physical human needs. Isn't there more to life than cereal and coffee and coats and cash? <laughs> of course there is. There is a, a, a greater spiritual reality to life. And our chief concern shouldn't be what we have or don't have, but who we are on the inside. Your hearts matter more than your stomach or your skin. The world, the, the flesh, and the devil are always trying to get us to, hard to live only on this physical plane of existence, be totally tied up with thinking about and talking about and reading about, watching stuff about food or clothing or other physical needs to the point that we are worried sick about them. But there's so much more to life than this. So much more. That said, our bodies are the most tangibly obvious part about us. and The only visible part of who we are. So how are we supposed to not be anxious about them? Well, Jesus wants to change our perspectives. To really, he wants to get our eyes off of ourselves and onto God. To do so, he wants us to look around at the world around us at some things that are visible to us, which demonstrate that greater invisible reality. Look at verse 26. He says, look, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? You might picture here Jesus even pointing out birds around them that day. Look at that. See that flittering sparrow? See the, the hopping robin, the swimming duck, the soaring hawk? Think about their lives. Think about where do they get their food? How do they, what do they do? Think about their diets. Like they don't plant 
farms or harvest crops or fill up storehouses full of food? The implication is that we do. This is what we do to produce food and drink. Even today in a a non-arm harvest and a barn. Along the food supply line, most of our food comes from a farm, a harvest, and a barn. This happens. But, But birds don't do this. And yet, they don't starve. Why not? And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? This gets really at the the big idea of this entire passage. Namely this, that God's heavenly care for us should free us from earthly anxieties. That is the the huge point of this whole chapter, or this this passage at the end of the chapter. God's heavenly care for us should free us from troubled hearts, from earthly anxiety. Look at the birds of the air, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Notice that God is the bird's creator. He is not their father. He is our heavenly Father. We're his children, and therefore we're of far more value to him than birds are. They are you not of more value than they? Of course we are. People are, are the pinnacle of his creation. We're the only creatures made in his image. And like I said earlier, we need to focus less on what we have and more on who we are. Real, to realize just how fa- unfathomably loved we are by God. If we can truly, truly see ourselves as God's child, our worries should just disappear. We have trouble wrapping our heads around that, that we're his children. That's why we have trouble believing that. Just think about what God did to make us his children. How did he do that? Sent his only son to die for us? There ain't no other creatures he died for. More than anything else, Jesus' death once and for all proved his love and his care for his people. Galatians 4 says, In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So if God is your father now, you have Jesus to thank for that. And if God is not yet your father, you have Jesus holding out this offer to you right now. Like your evil has been paid for on the cross of Christ. Your death, Lord, conquered when he rose. If only you'll put your faith in him as your savior and your Lord. Forgiveness and eternal life and glory and a home and a father are there to be received. He cares for you. 
beyond imagination. Can't you see? Now, some of us are anxious on a daily basis about our physical provision. We may be, we may worry about our employment search, our job security, our paycheck sufficiency. We may worry about not only how we pay the grocery bill, but also our rent or the mortgage, about the mechanic, the dentist, the school loan payments. We may worry over breakfast, lunch, and dinner, over feeding people under our care, fussing over meals, wondering if it's going to be enough, worried about what people will think. Listen, the, the remedy to our anxiety isn't to feel guilty about feeling anxious and then to muster up some level of peace. The remedy to our anxiety is to see and know God's heavenly care for you. Jesus makes the same point when he talks about clothes. Read with me verse 27. He says, And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Here you might imagine Jesus plucking a lily from the ground, holding it up for everyone to see. Lilies, in my opinion, are some of the most spectacular flowers out there. They're beautiful. They, they bloom with these long, bright, often brilliantly colored petals. And they just grow out in nature with only God to dress them up so exquisitely. Like we can't manufacture that all over the world to produce clothing, to either make or purchase our clothing. People work hard all over the world to produce clothing, toiling and, and spinning. However, the best clothing that we can make can hardly compare to creation's beauty. Solomon was known as the wealthiest king of all time. His wardrobe must have been extravagant, to say the least. But Jesus says that not even Solomon was dressed as nicely as flowers. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. The point, God clothes plants that are basically valueless. And people would use the grasses and flowers of the field as, as fuel for their ovens. So, how much more must God care about his people? Verse 30, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and is tomorrow thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Will you have little faith? Unlike flowers that pass away quickly, people are immortal beings. At least your hearts are. Do you know that about yourself? Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it, you are not only a creature of time, 
You belong to eternity. Each one of us does. And therefore, we shouldn't worry so much about the little details about today. We belong to eternity. Like the, like the pieces of fabric that cover our bodies. And do we worry much about clothes today? You bet we do. And you might think, well, I don't worry much about what to wear because I have all I need. But consider how much money we spend all the time on our clothes. All the time. Do we spend so much because that's the only way we think to quell our anxieties? I think so. And we, we spend because we worry that we don't have enough, even in our excess. We, spend, we, we worry that we aren't fashionable enough, as it is. Or we worry that we won't be happy if we don't have that new pair of shoes. Charles Spurgeon exclaims, Lovely lilies, how ye rebuke our foolish nervousness. Why do we doubt that God will take care of our needs? Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Little faith. You might remember when we were studying Deuteronomy recently, the Israelites had reason to be anxious and afraid as they approached the promised land. They were about to face these, all these enemies that were way stronger than they were. But in Deuteronomy 31.6, Moses exhorted them, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. So there they were told to not be afraid because God was with them and because God was so strong. His presence and his power. I said at that time, if this God is for us, then all fear becomes irrational. But here in Matthew 6, there is an added dimension to why we never need to be anxious. Jesus doesn't just appeal to God's presence and his power. He appeals to his love. To his love. I mean, and God's love it explains why God is for us in the first place. And why his presence doesn't crush us. And why his power doesn't destroy us. Because he loves us. To be anxious is really to cast doubt on either how powerful or how present or how loving God is. Jesus says that anxiety is evidence of being Low on faith, O oh, you of little faith. Now this all raises a question in many of our minds. That is, is, is all anxiety sinful? And what about clinical anxiety? What, about, what if it's legitimate mental illness or mental disorder? And people, in this case, often feel like they have no control over their daily anxiety. Well, I believe that anxiety, all anxiety, is either a sin or it's a result of living in a world broken by sin. I further believe that 
a conscious lack of faith is always sin. A sin that should be repented of. And we should never hide any faithlessness behind the label of a mental condition. However, I doubt that's what usually happens with clinical anxiety. Sometimes anxiety is not a conscious lack of faith, and therefore I believe it's not sinful. I do believe that our earthly flesh is so corrupted by the fall and God's curse on the earth and exploits and abuse illnesses and imbalances, all of which can exploit and abuse our sinful tendencies and our lack of faith to begin with. So, sometimes anxiety disorders are innocent, unfortunate results of the fall. And sometimes anxiety disorders can take pre-existing sin and make it worse. No matter what kind of anxiety it is, though, I believe we should fight against it. And with any tool that God makes available to us, which can include the common graces of counseling and medicine and so on. John Piper says, The physical brain and the spiritual soul are interdependent in ways that we cannot fully see. That means that there are, and there always will be, physical strategies as well as spiritual strategies for dealing with the conditions of our soul. You don't need to always feel guilty for being emotionally imbalanced, but you do need to recognize it as an aspect of our fallen world. You should grieve it, seek help, and do all we can to remedy it. There are many things we can do to to practically relieve daily anxieties in our lives. Sleeping, eating, exercising well, getting technology use under control, seeking out wise counselors, good friends, meditating on scripture, praying. But, Jesus doesn't really give us any of these strategies here, does he? No, Jesus' strategy is to change our heart's perspective and mindset. Because, after all, if if the heart is the wellspring of life, if he gets our hearts, that'll correct the rest. I also think that Jesus doesn't stress a bunch of things that we can do to correct our life situations because so much of life is just outside of our control. Right? Even secular ex- experts admit this much. Peter Dockrell, for example, says, Sadly, there's no quick fix for any of this anxiety, of course. And while there's importance in attempts to reduce stress, it's clear that external factors outside people's control are a big contributor to this surge in negative feeling." Now, this is a place where Jesus' teaching turns the world's way of thinking on its head. Because for Christians, the recognition that life is outside of our control shouldn't actually induce or cause anxiety, but relieve it. After all, Would you want life to really be in your pathetic hand's control? See, God's heavenly care for us should free us from earthly anxiety because life is in his control, not ours.
God's care for us frees us from anxiety. Point on your notes for you. It's like, if, this, if life was in our control, that would be anxiety-causing. Right? You'd have to stay in control. You can't. Jesus makes this point back in verse 27, which we blew right past earlier. It says, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Essentially, he's asking, What good does worry do you? And the answer is, None. Right? It's pointless. It doesn't make life better or more pleasant or longer. We see all kinds of articles online suggesting ways that we might live longer in our lives, right? You may have seen even some this week. Everything from having grandkids to having pets to reading books to running marathons to drinking less alcohol to drinking more wine. to eating less sugar, to eating more chocolate. (laughs) Face it, we are worried about how long we're going to live. We fret about death, about our end. But let me tell you this fact. You cannot change how long you'll live. You cannot change how long you'll live. Whenever God says it's your time, it'll be your time. And no matter how much you worry about eating right and working out and so on, you won't be able to add a single hour to the time that God has planned for you. Now that might sound fatalistic to you. And for a non-believer, it very well may be. For a believer, this should ultimately prove comforting. Because our Father is Lord over all and sovereign over everything. And we can rest assured that that His plan for us is best and that it will prevail. another way that God's character should calm our anxieties, though. That's what we're going to see next. God's to us, and that's his knowledge. That's what we're going to see next. God's heavenly care for us should free us from earthly anxiety because our God knows our needs. God's care for us frees us from anxiety because he knows our needs. Look how Jesus says this, starting verse 31. It says, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Now, he actually sneaks another reason in there to not worry. It says, the Gentiles go after all these physical needs. What's implied? You're not Gentiles. And he's speaking to his people. You're not Gentiles. By Gentiles, Jesus was talking about unbelievers in general. Most of us here today may be Gentile by birth. That's non-Jewish. 
by birth, but we're no longer this kind of Gentile. And therefore, we should live differently than everyone else in the world. It should be obvious to those around us that our approach to life, that our, the way we react to difficulties and joys and stresses and pain and need and, and gains, it's like this should be different than the way non-Christians live and react. So is it? Just look around at advertisements and commercials and billboards today and you'll see just how much our world still runs after food and clothing and the like. People are obsessed with meeting all bodily needs and pleasures. They're anxious to, to feed and clothe and warm and cool and refresh and relax and entertain us. Now those pursuits in moderation, are not wrong in and of themselves. I mean, Jesus says right here that God knows that we have needs. He says, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But when we become engrossed with our earthly welfare, we no longer act as God's people. It's actually God himself that should make us stand out says, for the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. So the message paraphrases it. People who don't know God and the way he works fuss over these things. But you know both God and how he works. God's knowledge of our needs gives us yet another reason to trust him. Remember that this is a key reason that Jesus told us earlier in this chapter to pray to our Father in, in, with simplicity and honesty and unlike the Gentiles. Interestingly, verse 8 says, Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Convinced to care for us. God knows. God knows. So your heartache, your loneliness, your insecurity, your pain, your uncertainty, your money problems, your work stress, your losses, your marriage troubles, your infertility, your parenting issues. God knows. God knows. So Lloyd-Jones says, He knows all about us in every respect, and he therefore knows our every need. From that, our Lord draws this deduction. You need never be anxious, must never be worried. God is with you in this state. You are not alone, and he is your Father. Even an earthly father does this in a measure. He is with his child, protecting, doing everything he can for him. Multiply that by infinity. And that is what God is doing with respect to you, whatever your circumstance. 
If we were but to grasp this, it would surely cause worry and strain and anxiety to be banished once and forever. And then get this. Never allow yourself for a moment to think that you are left to yourself. You're not. Take heart. We are loved by an awesome God. And as the children of this supreme, superior God, we are called then to have superior affections ourselves. That's essentially Jesus' final point. That there are, are greater things to pursue in life Verse 32 again, for the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, care for us, should free us from earthly to you. So God's heavenly care for us should free us from earthly anxiety because we should care more for the things of God. God's care for us frees us from anxiety because as we follow him, our hearts learn to care more ourselves for the things of him, his kingdom, his righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This is what we should concentrate on instead to be our primary concern. But what, what does this even mean to seek his kingdom and his righteousness? Well, God's kingdom refers to the rule of God over his people and their hearts. John Stott explains, God's kingdom is Jesus Christ ruling over his people in total blessing and total demand. To seek first this kingdom is to desire, as of first importance, the spread of the reign of Jesus Christ. Such a desire will start with ourselves until every single department of our life is joyfully and freely submissive to Christ. So that's to seek his kingdom. To seek his righteousness is to seek to be like Christ in holiness and love. It's to recognize that we are not righteous on our own and we need Jesus. But then to see that by the Spirit, he is given us the ability to live righteously. And so to pursue that with all of our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. And with that, this statement about seeking righteousness, this chapter comes full circle. Because in verse 1, he told us to practice righteousness secretly. And now we're told to Seek after such righteousness passionately with all we are to run after it. There are also promised amazing rewards here in God's grace. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Now this does not promise an untroubled life. I mean, God cares so much, and yet think about it, birds and flowers and people still suffer and die. What this does promise is a faithful God who loves us and who will provide for us 
and see us through to the other side. Guaranteed. And therefore, even in the middle of all kinds of troubles of life, our hearts can be untroubled, resting in the faith in God. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what matters now. That's what will matter in eternity. So let's pursue what we're promised. And in summary, Jesus says once more, therefore, verse 34, therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Or or each day has enough trouble of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. Jesus is basically saying here that that worrying is a waste of time, thought, and energy. As Stott concludes, we need to learn to live a day at a time. If we anticipate troubles, we double them. For if, we fe- if our fear does not materialize, we have worried once for nothing. If it does materialize, we have worried twice instead of once. In both cases, it is foolish. Worry doubles trouble. To become preoccupied with material things in such a way that they engross our attention, absorb our energy, and burden us with anxiety is incompatible with both Christian faith and common sense. It is distrustful of our Heavenly Father, and it is frankly stupid. Don't know if I'd be so bold to say that. John Stott is, so there it is. <laughs> distrustful of our Heavenly Father, and it is frankly stupid. Now, this teaching is, is so relevant and practical for us every day. We so easily get anxious about things in this life. Last week, as I was preparing this, beginning to prepare this message, I had a really heavy work week. I was preparing for like 10 different things at the same time and starting to freak out a bit. And then on the way home, the check engine light came on in my car. Got to be kidding me. (laughs) This is the, the last thing I need right now. And you've been there, right? Your mind starts racing at a mile a minute. I don't have time to deal with this too. Am I going to be able to get to where I need to be this week? And I got a wedding. I got church to be at. All these other things. Do I need, do I need to rent a, a van for us? What are we going to do with the kids during this time? Also, what's wrong with the van? Right? Like, is it a major repair? We can't afford that. And then I get this passage out to study. Swift kick to my self-sufficiency. And God deals a swift kick to my self-sufficiency. <laughs> Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. It's like, why aren't you trusting me, Matt? Don't worry. I'll take care of you. And he did. He always does. This word speaks directly into our hearts and lives all the time, if we let it. 
So what has you anxious today? I am confident that every one of us is worried about one thing or another. Everyone's anxious. Looking to the future, your health may concern you. Your safety may burden you. Your finances may make you fearful. Your relationships may trouble you. School or work may stress you. Politics, especially this week, may distress you. But God is God over all those things. And He sees, He knows, He cares. And he reigns. So take your anxieties and your cares and and cast them at his feet. That's what he tells us to do. Cast all your anxieties on the Lord because he cares for you. And seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And will that really be worth it? Well, don't take my word for it. Take God's word for it. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Look to the unseen. That's where everything really counts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know our our hearts, you know our anxious thoughts. You know that it is hard for us to trust you. And so we pray this morning that you would speak to our hearts, calm us, help us to truly trust you as our Father. You love us. Help us believe it. Thank you that you care. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.